The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 334 Premium for Friday, June 3rd, 2011. Good greetings, folks, and welcome back. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. It's been uh, a good couple of weeks here. Uh, we took some time off, but we are back to answer your questions, share some tips, and discuss all kinds of great, fun, geeky things, and help explain them in the process. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. And back in Durham, New Hampshire, Pilot Pete for the second show in a row, I think. I'm, I'm on a streak. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. So, you know, this is actually take two of this show. I, I flubbed the intro uh, on the first one. And Pete, of course, was so kind as to remind me that it was the second time in a row that uh, that I flubbed the intro. So now I'll, of course, be, you know, hyper aware of it uh, for the next show. And I'm sure I'll blow it. And, uh, and wait, did I press the right button? And we actually recording here. We are. So you folks are actually even hearing this. So, uh so here we are. John, you said you had uh, in our little gap of time off, you had a time machine issue that you solved. So why don't you tell us about that? Whoa, we're diving right into that. Sure. Why not? Oh, man, you're throwing me. I put that at the end. Oh. Well, let's start at the beginning. So. As of uh, very recently, I noticed that my time machine backups seem to be going very quickly. That's a good thing. Oh, me too. Uh-oh. It usually is. Now, number one, I modify. And as far as I know, this this program still works, but I modify my backup schedule with Time Machine Editor. Right. Some, someone recently asked me, does this still work? And even though it's it's old, I think it's it, it's a couple of years old, it still works just fine. You just got to remember to turn off Time Machine in the Time Machine. Uh, that, that That's the only stumbling. Right. Uh, a problem I had is you, you can't run that and have it on because then they get they fight with each other. So I noticed they go very quickly. I'm like, well, yeah, that's normally a good thing, but they're almost going too quickly. Mm. So I pulled out another another tool. Now, one thing, you know, I could just examine the backups directly, but I, I pulled out another tool. Oh, what is backup what, loop? Which one was it? Not but, backup loop, though. That's a that's a nice one. I like that one. <clears throat> is it time tracker? I think. Yeah, oh, that's God. the other one. Yeah, that's right. They, to, yeah, and that's both, a very both both backup loop and time tracker will let you look at the contents of any given time machine backup. Uh, and of course there are multiples cause you get them for each time they back up throughout the day. And then it resets to every day and then to every week and then to every month go on. Right. And so I use that to, to look at the, the several most recent backups. I, I back up every four hours and I noticed that the size of them was, was rather small. And as a matter of fact, they were zero bytes. That's not really a backup. That's more like a placeholder. <laughs> the problem is I know I had added files to my system. Mm. So something was clearly wrong. I didn't know what to do. So I, I, I did a bit of digging and I'm not the only one that had run into this. But here's the solution to the problem. I had to start up in single user or safe mode. With, that's that's with the shift key down at uh, at start. Correct. correct. Okay, and then that'll and so bring what you happens, to the that bring you brings you to the login screen, and it says safe mode right above it, right? Correct. So, so I dug around a bit, and apparently it does. So, so the one way you'll know that you're starting up in the safe mode is that you'll see when you're starting up uh, while holding down the shift key, you'll see a little progress bar marching across the screen, and that indicates that the system is doing 
It, it does a number of things. Well, we'll link to the article explaining exactly what the system is doing. Cool. But based on what I read online, they said, you know what? If you're running into this, some index somewhere or some file got messed up and the way to fix it is to start up in safe mode. And lo and behold, I started up in safe mode. And as you pointed out, Dave, when you when you come to the login window, I believe it's in red letters. It says safe mode. Just to let you know that you are in safe mode. And then, and then at that point, I just did a normal restart. And from that point on, when I said back up now, then it started collecting all of the files that it should have been backing up. So, so I'm not sure huh. what caused this. Weird. But starting up in safe mode definitely fixed it. So if you all of a sudden notice that your time machine backup seemed to be going too quickly, number one, we suggested some tools that will tell you what the size of them are. Or uh, again, I examined them directly and I, and there were files I know I added to my system and I did not see them in the, in the folders in the uh, sparse image. So I knew something was wrong, but this solved it. So cool. Go figure. Uh, I guess every, every now and then something again, I, I, if anybody knows why this happened, I, I don't know what I did. You know, I, there was no corruption in my file system. You know, I ran this yeah. utility. Everything was great. There were no, you know, corrupted uh, files or links or, or trees or anything. It, it, it just kind of got confused and decided not to do anything. Huh? But you he, said after that, it, you booted normally and it, and it's working still. Yeah. Then it came up and it said up, oh, I got about three gigabytes, which was accurate. And then, then when I looked at the most, the contents of the most recent backup, all of the files that I had added since the point I noticed the problem were in fact there. So, so everything's great now. That's weird. Um, because I had, I had something that I had a weird problem that has gone away. And the only bit of I'll, I'll, I'll use air quotes here and you can play along at home. So get your hands ready. Uh, the only bit of <laughs> air quotes troubleshooting. You know, now you can put them down uh, that I did was starting up in safe mode. Now, the symptom I experienced was very weird. I was we uh, were way over uh, Memorial Day weekend last weekend. And uh, and we went up to my dad's place in Vermont where years ago we put a wireless router up there. And any time I go up there, if it's been a while, uh, I always bring my laptop with me so that I can make sure to update his firmware on the router and kind of get things up to date. But otherwise, I wouldn't have brought my laptop. I had no reason to bring it. I have my iPad, and my iPhone, and, and those would have served me fine. So started up my laptop one morning or whatever. We were kind of just hanging out and I figured I've got an hour. This is great. I'll, I'll do this. And so I did it. I got his firmware updated. And then as I was going through and just sort of reconfiguring everything, because I reset it to factory defaults, my computer started acting really weird. Now, this is my uh, three plus year old MacBook Pro with the Runcore SSD that's been in there. Oh, gosh, almost two years now. And what started happening was the system would just freeze for a really long period of time, well, seemingly long, maybe a minute and then it would respond again, but but not for very long. And then it would freeze. And and then I got a kernel panic. Uh, you know, I saw the the slow moving, uh, you know, uh, sheet come down over the OS. And I thought, oh, this is bad news. So I restarted and it was still doing the same thing. And I thought, you know what? I'm done. I, I've got the firmware on there. I can reconfigure the stupid thing from my iPad because it's just a web interface. Thank goodness it's not an Apple router. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that was great, you know, so I just shut it off and I figured I'll deal with it when I get home. So the first thing I did when I got back and remember with this machine, I've had this weird thing happen where the, the, the drive just gets really corrupt and I need to restore from my backup clone. So I thought, well, maybe I'll have to do that. And I, we got home Monday afternoon. I started it up. I 
first started it in safe mode to force a, uh, a file system check. Cause that's one of the things that, uh, that safe mode does. And, uh, and it came up fine in safe mode. I rebooted and it's been fine ever since I did shoot a separate clone of it. Cause of course I'm going away on, uh, I'm leaving on Sunday to head off to WWDC. And, uh, and so I wanted to have a portable drive to take with me. If, uh, if this thing craters again, I didn't know if the problem was the SSD drive or anything, but in the end, safe mode was the only thing that I did between the time when this thing was totally acting up and when it wasn't. Now, of course I also wasn't on my home network. Maybe it was looking for, and it, and the OS shouldn't do this and it's never done it before, but you know, maybe it was looking for some of my, my shares like my Drobo or whatever on the network and it couldn't find them and it was all freaked out about it. I, I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, say that's it, you know, knowing what safe mode does, it should not have fixed your problem, nor should it have fixed mine. And yet, uh, you know, we're both running fine. So maybe, well, you does. know, there could have been something else happening. So, yeah. so the article that you can look at is HT 1564 and, and it tells you some of the things that it does. And I'm, I'm wondering the most likely, I think here it says it forces a directory check of the startup volume. So maybe there was corruption that only safe mode could fix. Possibly. Um, yeah, possibly. It also, it also deletes a couple of caches, including the dynamic yeah. loader cache, and maybe, I don't know, you know, I, and I may never know the answer, but, uh, but know this, I'm traveling to WWDC with, uh, with a spare drive for my, my MacBook pro. So hopefully I won't need it. And we're going to do a show while I'm at WWDC next week because really, well, we have to, I mean, we, you know, the way June's schedule is going to work, we just can't, we can't go skip another week. That's just not fair to our listeners. So we, we, it, we're going to, it's to, not, no, it's no, not, we don't want them going into withdrawal. <laughs> We've already, we've already, we've or, or already asked us for enough for another podcast. <laughs> That's right. right. Uh, so uh, hopefully you'll get it. Well, you're, 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 you're going to be staying at a hotel with nice bandwidth, right? Are you, are you going to be at the uh, intercontinental? You, you know, it's interesting. You asked that. Um, I'm actually not going to be at the intercontinental. Uh, and, and I'll explain briefly why I'm going to be staying at the Westin. And you know what? I'll explain it next week. It's fine. Uh, and, and, there, and I have no problems with the Intercontinental. I actually love that place. We've stayed there a couple of times. It's fantastic. But it, I, I want to test out the Westin for a couple of reasons, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll explain them later. But uh, but so I'm staying at the Westin. All right. Yeah. My experience with the Intercontinental uh, bandwidth was uh, very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they know what they're doing there. All right. Uh, All right. Let's go to some questions. Amy writes, I ran into an issue the other day with using Mac OS 10 to compress a folder and then sending that folder as a zip archive to PC users. I I received a number of complaints regarding the hidden files that Mac OS 10 includes, namely dot DS underscore underscore store and a folder named something like underscore Mac OS X. Looking around in the OS, I couldn't see a way to tell my computer to create the zip file without these hidden files. So I'm guessing that I'll need to find a third party app to do this. I was wondering if you had any suggestions on the best one for me to look at that gives me the capability. I'm sure there's something I could do in the terminal to accomplish this, but I'd prefer not to have to go there. Uh, John, you, uh, you, you, you take the lead on this one. She has I, I with dug PCs. in. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, Pete, uh, you bring up a good point. Is that that was going to be my initial response as it serves them right for running on a. <laughs> no, actually, uh, uh, this will be a finger wag at Apple is that, yes, they do include extraneous garbage that does not mean anything to PC users. So so finger wag to them and really because... doesn't mean anything to Mac users either. Well, uh, no, no. I, I mean, I, in terms I, of I, having it in a zip file, I don't see I, the, the I benefit. Disagree. OK, go. 
So it does two things. As pointed out, it includes a .ds underscore store file. And this is the file that I believe has the uh, uh, the position of icons within the window. So, so that, I'll, I'll say that's not critical, but it, it may make it for a nicer sure. user experience if a Mac user unzips the file. Fair but enough. then you have this underscore underscore Mac OS X directory. And that has all sorts of thumbnails and graphics. Most of what I found in there was, was JPEGs. Interesting. Now I'm going to, I'm going to give to address the first question. Is there something I could do in the terminal? Though I don't think that's the preferred solution, but I'm going to offer that as the first thing. So yes, you certainly could do this in the terminal. If you do it in the terminal, as, as far as I could tell Dave, it does not include this garbage, but you have to go to the terminal and you have to say zip space dash R, which I believe is recursive. That's right. That'll zip a space. the contents of it. Yep. So first you got to go into the directory that you want to, you want to uh, zip everything. So you do zip space dash R space, then the name that you want to give to the zip file, then another space, then a dot, which I'm going to think means a uh, current directory space. And then if you want to exclude DS store, then you do a dash X which I'm going to guess is exclude space dot DS under backslash star. So two things. So one that get ri- gets rid of the DS store file. But then the other thing I saw is that it did not include the, because you're doing it, I guess from the terminal. So, so it's invoking a slightly do di- it's invoking zip differently and that you're doing it from the command line. So that will create what you want. <clears throat> but, uh, but she said she didn't want to do that. So that's why I put it at the, the end of the response. Now, sure. the program that will do this for you is that there is a program that will do this for you. And a lot of people referenced it, checked it out, and it's called Yimu Zip. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, because it's from Yellow Mug Software. So it's Yellow Mug Yellow Zip. Hey, 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 check it out. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing is they have not one, not two, but, but it appears three versions. So one, there is a free ad supported version. Mm hmm. You can also purchase uh, the pro version for four ninety five, but then wait, there's more. If you purchase it from the app store, it's uh, it's on special for ninety nine cents. Well, that sounds like the way to get it. And the response from Amy is like, you know, this is going to be the first thing I think I'm going to buy from the app store. And hey. for me to eliminate that headache, I think it's certainly worth ninety nine cents. Yeah. Uh, now there there are a few others. Uh, I did find another. From Roger Jolly Software, and, and I believe it's an Apple script, and this is post processing, so not quite as nice. Okay, but it's called Zip Cleaner, and it, what what it will do is once you have a zip file, if you put it through this, it'll pull out all of the uh, garbage. And then cool. I'm going to offer yet another option, Dave. Go. You know we're just chock full. I mean, this is the premium show. That's, That's right. what we'll do this hey, for the, the regular ex- show too. Go the but I found mile. so many options. But then there's a third option if you're into Automator. There's a, a group called uh, at junecloud.com that makes a group of automator actions. And one of the actions, so if you want to automate this or create your own workflow, uh, that they have, an, uh, they have a set of actions. One of them is called Create Clean Archive. And oh, that's exactly what this does. That's awesome. So we have so many choices. It's, 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 it's overwhelming. overwhelming. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but, uh, but again, cool. it is kind of a fist. It is a finger wag because I, I that they should offer an option. Well, you, you know, either, to, either in the contextual yeah. menu saying maybe yeah. either compress or compress for, you know, non Mac. Yeah. But 
I've actually got a question along those lines. And I thought somewhere in there, and I've been looking for it in preferences and finder and that sort of thing. I'm looking for uh, the show hidden files option and I'm not seeing it. But I was thinking if you could just show the hidden files and then go in and uh, select select them with the command key and then right click and compress, that'd be a way to do it as well. Show hidden files is only an option in searches in the finder. yeah, there's no okay. there's no menu right. item to show yeah, that no in the, in the directory. Yeah. All right. Well, well, this would solve the problem of the DS store file, Pete. Sure. And something like we, we talked about, but Total Finder, for example, would do this for you. Right. Total Finder and, and, and oh, other right. Finder modifiers would show yeah. you that. But the underscore underscore Mac OS 10 directory, as far as I know, that that's something that's just built into the, the compress command. Gotcha. Well, it's it's. It's nothing's built into the compress command. The compress command is grabbing the whole directory. But um, what what's happening is that's how Mac OS 10 stores this data on, in the file system, right? Those DS store and the underscore underscore Mac OS 10 directory. That stuff exists on your Mac. It's not creating it at the time you're doing the archive. It's just grabbing the folder and and that stuff is in there. So it's baking it into the uh, to the archive because that's what you've told it to do. Right. You've said archive this whole folder. It's got it I'll dutifully obey your, your command. So um, so that that's what's going on there. So, yeah. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I, I don't see an underscore underscore Mac OS X directory. Do you have files that have resource forks in that directory? Because that's what that folder stores. Now, usually, right, that right, but is, yeah, yeah. But if I go to a directory in the terminal and I do ls space dash a, I'll see the .ds store file. I will not see a underscore underscore Mac OS ten directory. And yet, if you zip it, it's in there. Yes. Really. And here's another thing. Now, you may ask, how did I see this underscore underscore Mac OS 10 directory? Because it's funny. I tried. What, what did I use? Um, I did use one utility. Okay. Oh, man. It's a, the, the lets you look inside packages. Oh, okay. Hold on. It'll come to me in a moment. All right. Pa- pacifist, anyway, you mean? That's it. Yes. Yeah. And that did show me. So, so I did a little experiment is that I, I zipped a file. And then I said, well, you know, let me check this out. So I took pacifist just just the because the, it showed up in the contextual menu as a, yeah. as a file that understands zip files. And it showed me the doc, the dot DS store file. But I didn't see the underscore underscore Mac OS 10 thing. So I, I think it ignores yeah, maybe. it. Yeah. But then here's how I saw it. So so I did. You know, I mean, I, I went overboard with this question. So sounds like I it. started up VMware. We're at 15 minutes here. Yeah, but, no, but still, there's a, there, I think we're touching on a lot of useful things here. So yeah. I went to VMware. Yep. And I said, well, you know, this is crazy. I, on the Mac end, I can't seem to see this underscore underscore. Right. Uh, Mac OS 10 directory. But I went into VMware, and because that was a shared directory, I, I, I took that file, copied it into VMware, and did an unzip. And sure enough, there was that directory. But then here's the other way you can see it. You can you see, the see terminal, I, I think they're there. I, I, I think they're there because when I mount a flash drive, on my Mac, I can't see the underscore underscore Mac OS 10 directory. But if I mount that same flash drive on Windows, no zipping in the middle, that directory is there oftentimes. Interesting. So I guess the only thing is I'm wondering, is it created by the zip command? Because like I oh. mentioned to you, if I did a zip directly, the zip command directly from the terminal. Yeah. It did not include the underscore underscore Mac OS 10. Huh. Now you may ask, how did I determine this? Well, 
with with every command, there's an op. Well, in this case, there's an opposite command. So there's a zip command. Well, yep. you know what? There's an unzip command. Right. And what I did. So if you want to examine the contents of a zip file, you can do unzip space dash L. And you can probably guess what that does. Yeah. That lists all the files in the zip. And then it'll show you that underscore underscore. So I don't know if we, uh, so I definitely identified all I wish, of I, I, wish I had there. a flash drive within reach here, um, but, but I don't. Pete yeah, we'll get, get Pete on the case. <laughs> yeah, man, I got one right cheap. Of course, we don't have a Windows machine to plug it into to see. So, oh, yeah. yeah, the test is tough to uh, yeah, tough I to could, do on the fly here. Parallels. There you go. Let me do that. All right, cool. So, all right. Uh, so, we'll, it, we'll have it, your it answer just, later in the show. Great. So, uh, Again, cool. I went above and beyond because it was bugging me because I'm like, where is this directory coming from? Yeah. And I, I don't know if I yet fully understand exactly who places that in the zip file. Right. So, so the test, out. Pete, will be just copy a folder with some items in it from your Mac and then mount the same drive inside parallels and see if that underscore underscore file underscore underscore Mac OS 10 files there. Uh, you know, you mentioned automator. And so I will take our uh, ADHD fueled podcast in a different direction. <laughs> uh Michael Johnston actually chimed in with the answer to my automator question, my geek challenge, if, as it were, uh, at the end of a show, a couple of shows back where I said I wanted the opportunity to mid automator script, step in and enter uh, a custom uh, uh, text to add to the end of a file. And uh, and Michael said, oh, yeah, that's really easy inside. And it's it's not obvious unless you know to do it and then it's really obvious, but there's no way to pull the input from automator and have it pump that variable. You know, you can, you can have automator ask for input and then take the contents of whatever you type and pass it and, and store it in a, a variable in memory, but you can't, the, uh, the rename files command does not read variables. So, uh, or does not read those types of variables. So there was no way to do this, but there's a really easy way to do it. And uh, and so the ad I use the add text to finder names item and in automator with every little action that you drag into your workflow, there are three little buttons at the bottom results, options and description. And if you click on options, there is a checkbox that by default is unchecked that says show this action when the workflow runs. And this is exactly the box I wanted to check. So I checked that box. And now every time I run automator, when it gets to that spot, it pops up and says, what do you want to type? And if I want to put something there, I put it there and it adds it to the file. If I don't want to add anything to the file, I leave it alone and it merrily goes on its way either way. So thank you, Michael. That was the, uh, it was outstanding. All right. Scott writes as a very experienced Mac user and family ordained Uber geek, you'd think that I would know the answer to this question. It's a bit on the esoteric side, though. So I'm turning to you, my secret weapon, the absolute official, undisputed, irrefutable, consummate, unequivocal source. I restart my Mac period. Thank you, Scott. The flattery will get you. Well, it'll get you your question answered and, and read on the air here. Uh Scott writes, I restart my Mac periodically just for maintenance purposes, but for the most part, I let it run all the time. I can't even remember the last time it crashed. Got a, gotta love Mac OS 10. Occasionally after installing a new application, instructions require a restart. Does a log out and log back in do the same thing? Is there a significant or appreciable difference between logging out and logging back in versus restarting? Will one work as well as the other? Okay. 
Uh, The answer is it depends. Uh, Logging out and logging back in will reset anything that's happening at the user level. And by that, what I mean is if you install an app that only changes or adds to a given user's settings or login items, then yeah, you're good to go. You just log out and log back in. Uh, However, if the installation adds to or changes these system-wide settings or extensions or startup items, then a reboot's required because logging out and logging back in doesn't reset anything at the system level. Uh, the thing that you may not know is which is really required unless the installer explicitly tells you what it's doing. I, I seem to remember default folder from uh, St. Clair software. It's one of those that says you need to log back out and log back in. I think, I think uh, some of the, the add-ons to audio hijack pro do the same thing. They, they say you got to just log out and log back in. You don't need to restart. That's really helpful. Most software though. And I think this is because of the way I don't think there's a, there's a, and John, you've worked with installer maker uh, far more than I have, but I don't think there's a convention inside Apple's installer maker to say, tell the user to log out. There's either, you know, all there is, is tell the user to restart or force the user to restart. And, and that's all that's there, right? So, so you, you kind of have to go your own path if you want to tell people to log out and log back in. And that's why sometimes it's probably necessary and sometimes it's probably not, but at least now you know why, uh, even though the, the apps that you're installing may not be all that clear about it. John, you have any thoughts on that? <sighs> yeah, you caught me by surprise, but I'm I did background. Well, I mean, the only thing I know, I mean, I've looked at, so, so the, the, uh, it's called package maker and this is part of the, sorry, tools. that's that the see, see how much experience I have with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, None less than me. <laughs> Zero is me. I've heard you talk about it. That's the only way I even knew it existed. I mean, I'm looking right now. And I mean, the, the only thing, and, and we've discussed this for various reasons, but they do have so configuration that they have a number of options. And one of them is require admin authentication, which oddly enough to me is a checkbox. And I don't know why you would want to not check that. Well, you might not be doing anything that requires admin authentication. Right. We, we've discussed this. It, yeah. it, in my humble opinion, I think you should always be, well, if you want to maintain order. <laughs> but I don't see anything within at least Package Maker that has any sort of options for doing that. Okay. Well, I do see options here for scripts. So maybe, maybe you can script saying a restart, or I think it may just figure it out. It may look at. Well, just like with the input and says, well, right. you know, something was like you're, you're, you're suggesting, oh, you know, something was put in a system directory. So yeah, that means we got to, we got to restart, but my guess it's not going to be loaded unless you, unless you do that. My guess right? is it's going to force the restart. Even if you're putting something in your, you know, uh, user level login items thing, I've never had uh, a, a package maker. Is that what it's called? Uh, installer right. say to me, you just got to log out. It's always some custom right. thing. So. Cool. You know, you're right. Yeah. Uh, default and yeah. Default folder, I think is, is one of the, one of the ones where, yeah, it, it just says, Oh, log out and log back in just to make sure that nothing gets, uh, that, that, that I will work properly for you. That's right. Oh, right, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Here we oh, go. Oh, oh. Uh, uh, we're going to date in the kit. I just noticed this. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I was distracted, but then you, you were saying we're, <laughs> we're all ADD or OCD or, or which one I, I can't. We'll, we'll go with the first <laughs> in the configuration section of package maker hey look at this there's a restart action ah look at this 
You know, we're just delivering, Dave. I don't know how it happens, but I think I think I just panicked. But no, there is a restart action selection within Package Maker, and the options are none, require logout, oh. require restart, huh. and require whoa shutdown. Huh? So, so there is. It is. Now I suppose there's a potential for the creator of the installer package to make the wrong choice there. It seems many of them do. <laughs> but you can explicitly state what the installer will say at the end of it doing its thing. Yeah. Again, those options. They're nothing or varying levels of, of requiring you to do something. Right. Right. Usually with a button that forces you or you can let it sit there and not press the button. Cool. Yeah, you can. You, know, you can force quit the installer and then you don't have to restart. I, I wouldn't recommend that. though. No, but I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, the next item on the list here, Barry wrote in, he says, uh, and Bar- Barry's fantastic because he reminds us of things all the time. If we're ever somewhere, and this is true. Uh, if you'll remember during the Macworld Expo show, I said, I got to remember to contact my cable company to check my billing. I got off stage. I had an email from Barry saying, reminder, check your cable company to contact your billing. It's fantastic. Uh Barry writes, a reminder, kudos to OmniFocus, came to up to remind mm, the esteemed Mr. Braun to check his battery's prowess on his laptop a year after MacGeekGab 263, which was recorded and released on May 24th, 2010. So, John, you uh, it's time to check it. It's a year later. Do tell. Well, you know, I did order some new batteries. Actually, I did order some from newer. OK. Uh, towards the You know, I think I did it just before. Macworld. Okay. This year or last year? This year. Oh, yes. okay. Okay. Well, the thing is, I, I think you remember I, I gave one to the seatback gods at uh, JetBlue. <laughs> That's right. You donated. So I only had one left and it was dying and I already had it replaced once by Apple Care. And uh, they will replace your battery if it's, if it's uh, falling Absolutely. out of spec. Yeah. Uh, so I bought these, uh, the, these batteries from newer. And, you know, sadly, I got to say, well, I took the advice that you gave, Dave, which is, is beat the heck out of them. Yeah. And I got to say these, uh, I, I think I got to talk to them because I believe they make the claim, which is similar to Apple in that it should maintain at least 80% of its uh, maximum capacity before yep. the number of charge cycles are depleted. Well, sadly, I'm looking at this battery. So it's a 5,400 milliamp hour battery. Okay. And right now the uh, current capacity is 3715, which is 69%. And the charge cycles are not yet the maximum number of charge cycles. How many charge so, cycles do you have? 201. Huh. Which it shows 50, is 50% of the... Uh, yeah. So based on yeah. the warranty that I saw on their site, and I did register. So if you... You know, and I love newer stuff, but mm. it either... Uh, I don't know. But, but I, I believe in this case. And then... Because uh, also, if I go into my system preferences and go into... I think it's Energy Saver. Yeah. It'll say service battery service. battery. That, that's actually it might be an energy saver. I know it'll be in system profiler and it will also show up if you're running iStat menus in the little drop down menu, too. Or maybe not even iStat menus. I think it might might just be in the regular yep. battery. No, right here. Yeah, menu. definitely. So if I go into uh, energy saver and battery, yeah. I, I see the little caution sign and it says service battery. Huh. So, to be, so now, I think they follow the same guidelines that Apple does is right. if, if you are below a certain percentage of maximum capacity and not yet reached the charge cycles then it says yeah service battery which yeah yeah so All thank right, you well, barry there you go yeah barry was was out here the other day he came to visit which was nice 
All right, Pete, I believe we have a we have an answer to well, our, our on-the-fly geek challenge earlier. Yeah, no, well, I've got it mounted, but I, I, I want you to look at it, because I've actually forgotten the question, so I had to fight it so damn hard to get my uh, <laughs> virtual machine um, to recognize am it. Am I plugged in here? Okay. No. So, yeah. Okay, so you copied... A, 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 I just copied a folder. I compressed a folder called text files, and I put it in there. When I copied the folder straight over, uncompressed, yeah. none of that was there. When I compressed it and sent it into there... All okay. the uh, dot, dot .ds store. Okay, so the folder in and of itself, which is right here, right? It's you, out here. Right, if you just drag, now I've deleted it from the flash drive now, but if you just drag a folder to a flash drive, yeah. uh, that DS store apparently goes with it. At least it wasn't visible. Wait, where did these text files come from? Oh, you know. Oh, they're just off my desktop. Okay. I just had a folder on my desktop called text files. All right. And if, if I drag the file onto the flash drive, yep. they... Uh, they don't appear on the virtual machine. When I compress the folder and put it on the flash drive and then go into the decompress, they appear. They appear. Very interesting. And it's just text files. So these things don't have any. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, Isn't that interesting? Icons or something? And folder icons, maybe. That's maybe. Yeah. So it's still kind of a mystery. I mean, we certainly covered how to not include them, but uh, as, as to the conditions when they appear or. Yeah, very, very really interesting. There? All right, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying this again. Don't format my hard drive, please. Wait, is, <laughs> how does this work again? Well, that's guaranteed to get rid of all of that stuff. That's right. Huh. You can only do it once. Yeah, you're right. So I copied the file. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly what you said is correct. Yep. And so, so if you copy so the folder uncompressed, if you don't have to compress it, that's one way not to do now, it. Now, I wonder... And there's actually a help he, file. I, I did find stumble across a help file in OS ten. I think it was under Finder. I, I wrote hidden files yeah. in the help. And it said, hey, what to do if these hidden folders show up on a Windows? They said, don't worry about it. You don't need them. Don't delete them if you need to use it again on a Mac. Otherwise, delete them. See, okay. So that that actually supports the theory I was about to share, which is that, that those folders are there, right? The DS, we know darn well that the .ds store files are there. Right. Right. Uh, so, but any, and let's just go with the .ds store for now. So we have this folder. We know that the .ds store is there because we can see it if we go in the terminal. Uh, however, when using the finder, when we copy that folder to the flash drive mm -hmm. and then check it under windows, the DS store file is gone. Mm -hmm. That tells me that the finder is being smart and is filtering the DS store file out of its copy. Um, but so it's finder is okay, but okay. it's not filtering it out when it creates a zip because again, it thinks you're going to want to use it on a Mac. Maybe. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just not filtering it for, right. for whatever reason. I mean, maybe it's just using, it's just invoking the Unix zip command, which is exactly what it's doing. Sure. Uh, and it's just not being intelligent and, and filtering that. So that's very, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Thanks, Pete. You bet. Yeah. So we can presume that the same thing's happening with the underscore underscore Mac OS X file or we, or directory rather, or we can't. We, that's our, that's our choice. Uh, yeah. Like I say, it has to be one of the two options. It has to be. It's either or. Either it is or it isn't. And, mm -hmm. and like I say, if you if you go in Finder and then help and type hidden, you'll get a if hidden files appear on Windows computers and it explains. Interesting. All right. Well, while we're uh, while we're talking about uh, files and moving and uh, and all of that stuff, we had a couple of notes back in, in show 332. Uh, we talked about moving cut files and cut and paste and all of that good stuff. 
Uh, we heard from uh, from both Michael and uh, and Dave. We'll start with Michael here. Michael says, as I was listening to Matt Geekab 332, I could not help to chime in uh, about the gentleman who was wanting to cut and paste. And while it seems you can't cut and paste a file in Mac OS 10, I can see why this could be an issue if that you cut a file and it, appear, it disappears and forget to paste it. It's a lost file. But in fact, you can do this similar action in the Finder without third-party applications just by using some magic shortcut keys. Uh, I'm not in front of my computer at this time, but I remember reading and doing this myself, moving files across the same partition and also across external hard drives. The only key is that he may want to have two Finder windows open at a time. And it's true. Uh, you can... If you drag uh, the drag and drop alone will move a file if you're on the same drive and partition, if you're moving or drive or partition, if you're moving across partitions or across drives, dragging and dropping will copy the file. Right. So if it's on the same drive, it moves it. If it's on another drive, it copies it. If while on the same drive, you want to duplicate the file, then you hold option drag and that will make a copy. However, if you're going from one drive to another, if you wish to move the file, i.e. leaving no copy behind, then command drag comes into play. Uh, the green circle with a plus icon will disappear from beneath the cursor. And that tells you that you are not copying the file, but that you are moving it. Uh, and so that's uh, that's the magic keystroke. It is command drag to go to a different partition and it will move the file. So that that's actually pretty cool. Did you test this, John? No. Oh, okay. Should I? Uh, should I'm, I test I'm it? running Total Finder, so. Right, right. That is the other answer. Right. That's the that's the one. Okay. So if I do this and I, I, I say, just can't, I can't part with it. Oh, well, I, look I, at that. I it did. It said, okay. So I just grabbed a file from my hard drive, and uh, and as I was, I I dragged it on top of the volume on my Drobo, and it had the little green circle with the plus in it, which indicated that it was going to copy. I held down the command key, the green circle went away, as uh, Michael indicated it would. And uh, when I when I released the mouse button to let the action happen, it said preparing to move, and then move in the Finder progress bar. And sure enough. The file exists on my Drobo, but not on my hard drive. So the command key is the trick here. And uh, that's that's very interesting. I, I'd, I'd never known that. Thanks, Michael. That's good. Excellent. Any any uh, any thoughts on that, John, or should we just no. move on to Dave? OK, so Dave uh, writes uh, in episode 332. There was a listener hopeful to find a program that would allow him to move, i.e. cut and paste files within the finder. I found one that rocks at kapeli.com. There is a file called move or a, an app called move addict. And sure enough, it allows you to use your cut and paste. It's a snow leopard only application that provides functionality. The finder was missing according to their website, eight bucks, but you can of course download it for free as you know, most software developers will allow you to try it out. So there you go. Move addict from Capelli. Cool. Thanks. How are we doing on time here, John? Should we? Uh, 40. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's go to uh, let's go to David while we're at it. We'll bounce back here. Two of our favorite topics, although if you believe the rumors, some something might change on Monday in, in regards to what Apple offers as in as their routers. <sighs> Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, I heard about that rumor. Yeah, there might be something. Who knows? Uh, Maybe something a Mac server about that. There might be. David writes, 
I was listening to Mac Geek Gab 330 concerning using Powerline. I use Powerline to connect my Wii so we can stream Netflix. I also have an Airport Express in the area that I use to stream music to my A5s and to extend my wireless network. The signal is okay, but I'm playing around with the idea of plugging my Airport Express into my Powerline while retaining my connection to the Wii. I assume all I need is an Ethernet hub. Is this correct? If so, is there really much difference between a $10 hub and a $50 switch for this purpose? I want dependability, but I don't want to overpay. If my solution is not correct, can you suggest a solution that is cost effective? Okay, so first of all, your your gut on the setup is correct. You would have your power line connection coming into that location. You would plug the power line connection into either a hub or a switch, and we'll talk about that uh, separately. And then, uh, and then you'd plug both your Wii and your uh, and your Airport Express be into into that uh, into that hub or switch as well. And and it's almost certain to be a better experience than getting a signal wirelessly. So yes, an Ethernet hub or switch is the way to go. Uh, before we dive into what a hub and a switch do and how they're different. I will say that it probably doesn't matter in your case. Uh, and here's why. Why? Well, a hub, let's say you have a 10 megabit hub. Okay. Uh, a hub shares its bandwidth amongst all the ports. So if you have a 10 megabit hub, all the ports on that hub have 10 megabits total bandwidth. So that means if port one is transmitting data, with a computer on port three, they get 10 megabits. However, if port, if the device plugged into port two wants to talk to somebody on port four, now everybody shares it and you get five either way. Whereas with a switch, each port is guaranteed full bandwidth. So in my example, one and three would get, and again, I'm using 10 megabits, even though nobody's probably buying a 10 megabit switch right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, one and three would get 10 megabits and two and four would also get 10 megabits because that's the maximum that those ports can support. Uh, in your case, it doesn't matter because everything's going over your power line. Your Wii and your airport express probably aren't going to need to talk to each other. They're all just looking to get bandwidth over what's coming in over power lines. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, shared or unique. It's going to be shared anyway, because you've got a single point of, of, well, I'm not going to say failure, but a single limiting point coming in that that sort of makes the rest irrelevant. That said, I don't know that you can find a hub these days. You're, you're going to want you don't want 10 megabits. Oh, no, sure you can. Well, not not for 100 megabits, though, because he's going to sure want something faster. Yeah, you can find a 100 megabit hub versus a 100 megabit sure, switch. Sure. Oh, OK. All right. Well, then, if you can, uh, I, I, I want to clarify yeah, I think ahead. what you said essentially boils down to the same thing. Mm hmm. But here's what a hub is really doing. Okay. At a lower level. Yep. A hub is stupid in that when there's traffic on one port, so you put traffic into one port, what happens is it gets rebroadcast to, to all, all the others. God. But I think what you said is essentially boils down to the same thing. Right, right. And that it's, it's not so much. And here's the problem with a hub. The problem is that. So one, because the, the the traffic on one port is then rebroadcast on all the other ones, what happens is that the, the, the hubs quickly reach a point where they're going to be collisions in that there's so much traffic because there's all this chatter. Right. So number one, the thing is not everybody needs 
So a lot of traffic is unnecessary and that it's going to yeah. get rebroadcast. In my example, and people or, who don't want it right. are going to say, well, this packet isn't meant for me. So whatever. But but then also as the amount of traffic increases and this is why all hubs have this, they have a little collision light. And and right. it gets kind of exponential. And that as you as you start adding. So for two devices, I would say a hub is probably OK because you're not going to have doesn't matter because you're going from one point to the other. Right. Or a relatively small number of devices. I would right. say, you know, maybe one or two additional devices or maybe four, I would say, until it starts getting crazy. Yeah. You don't want uh, I would say you don't want a hub with anything more than four ports and they make them. But yeah. but then you see the collision. Like, and, and what happens is your effective bandwidth just just uh, dives off a cliff. So so hubs are inexpensive. But but I think in this day and age, they've. Uh, the, the the cost difference between hubs and switches are just so okay small. so here here's the thing i i did some research when this Go. question came in and then based on your comment i just did a little bit more i cannot find anything other than a 10 megabit hub out there and even those are really really hard to find um, okay most, I, i've used them they probably don't make them anymore but i know i've used 100 megabit ones they, they weren't uh, as common as 10 okay I, I know they make them gigabit no gigabit, I, i've never no. seen a gigabit hub right because right. yeah it's just because yeah the, the potential for collision and all that stuff is well, just, actually it would get less with a gigabit hub right if you're not using all the backplane uh, bandwidth i mean you know in or theory, it just doesn't make sense because switches yeah. now i mean the cost of a of, well, a, of a chipset that does switching versus a hub yeah, I found a trend net five port Ethernet 10 100 uh, switch on uh, on Amazon for 10 bucks. So, uh, you know, as long as you don't need gigabit and for the the two devices you're talking about, we and, and your airport express, it doesn't <laughs> matter. So, uh, you, you know, I don't I mean, okay. there's, there's there's little there's little reason to do it. Right. So and I think it. An old an old router. If you happen to have an old router, wired router laying around, it'll do the same job. Yeah, as long that's Pete makes a good point. If you have an old wired router uh, or even a wireless router that has sure. more than one Ethernet port, essentially they built a switch or sometimes a hub, but but you know one or the other into it. Uh, the thing is, though, you want to make sure you go into that router's config page and turn off all right. routing and all of that stuff. You want to make it dumb, put it in bridge mode. Otherwise, you're going to potentially create a lot, a lot right. of headache. And yep. nothing goes into the WAN port on anything but your primary router. That's true, unless you're using well, firmware yeah. that allows you to assign the WAN port to the LAN switch. Okay, well, now you're really getting... <laughs> I, hey, you brought it up. Geeky. <laughs> you geeks. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, point taken. So, yeah, interesting. Cool. Uh, all right. I have, I have no idea where any of our questions are going to go because every question that we've answered so far today, John has gone completely off the map, off the rails. Oh yeah. Which is great. So I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll go next in the line. We'll just go to John. Uh, John writes, uh, I've been experimenting with different utilities to rip and condense DVDs, some homemade with IDV, uh, and have become confused about the various output encodings offered. I've tried several, including iPhone. And he's talking about using handbrake. Uh, he says, I've become confused about the various output encoding schemes, uh, schemes offered by Handbrake. I've tried several, including one labeled iPhone 3GS, iPad, Apple generic, etc., and they all seem to work. And I can't really tell the difference. I have the iPhone 3GS, iPad one, 
and I like to archive videos on my Drobo and can't tell if there's any one encoding setting which is best for all. Okay, so you and I are in a similar boat here, John, uh, because I do this. Uh, in a nutshell, the, the difference yep. is... Hold on. Oh, gosh, they're coming to get... See, they don't Careful like you, you talking about ripping DVDs illegally. <laughs> That's what's going on here. <laughs> they're coming to get you. No, nah, it was the fire truck. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, but it was funny, so we took it. Uh, we just do. We take any material we get. Uh, the differences are really just quality and size and, and sometimes codec differences, but in, in a, essentially with handbrake, I mean, you're going to do H.264 for everything because you're going to Apple devices and that's going to be best. So when you choose iPhone 3GS, it's going to encode that video down to the size of the screen for your iPhone 3GS. And that's great if that's the only device you're going to play it on because it's much, much smaller uh, than it would be if, for example, you wanted to do it at, say, full, uh, well, it's, you're doing DVDs, so you're not going to do 720p, but if you wanted to do full, you know, 480p resolution, uh, even especially if you're doing anamorphic, you know, that's going to be pretty big, which is 720 by 480, I think is what that would be. Whereas on the, on the iPhone 3GS, it's only, it's, you know, half that, right? So, uh, but, on, but what'll happen is the one you encode for the iPhone 3GS, if ever, in the future, you decide to play that on a larger device, i.e. your iPad, or if you get an Apple TV or some other device that, you know, will take that movie and play it on your TV, it's going to look really pixelated and, and kind of crummy. Uh, so for that reason, I always use, I, I t made some tweaks because, you know, I'm a geek, but for if, in a nutshell, I use the Apple TV setting or now there's one in handbrake called Apple TV two uh, that preserves what would be full quality. And we do occasionally play the things on the TV makes them a little bit big, you know, a, a two hour movie comes in anywhere between 1.2 and 1.8 gigs. So that's a, it's a fairly large file, but it's one file. And I don't need to think about, well, is this going to work good on my iPad? Is it going to work good on my iPhone? Is it going to work good on here? You know, that, that sort of thing. If you are using iTunes to sync those files to your iDevice, there is a little checkbox in there that says, you know, scale the movies down and, and it will scale those movies down. I don't do that because I don't like to have like you. I keep all the stuff on my Drobo. I don't want to manage it through iTunes. I don't want my iTunes library seeing it. Uh, it's not important to me. So I actually use Goodreader, uh, which is an app on both the iPhone and the iPad to play those movies. And I can move things in and out of Goodreader without iTunes. And that way it's, you know, it's not. I'm not cluttering my iTunes library with, with thousands and thousands of movies. Oh, interesting. Uh, I use VLC player, but Goodreader does movies now, huh? Yeah. I hadn't even tried. Well, and the cool part about Goodreader is it not only will it play movies, but I can, it, they've got a little app. It's hard to find uh, because I think Apple made them take it down, but they've got an app where I can transmit stuff directly to it via USB. I can also put it in as a wireless I can put it in Wi-Fi mode, which makes it uh, a um, like an AFP server, an Apple file oh, protocol. Okay. And so I can connect to it and just drag movies in right over a wireless oh, network. Nice. Okay. I can put one in wireless mode and move from iPhone to iPad without a computer. Nice. Yeah. So it's totally worth it for that. Goodreader is actually really more of a PDF and document manager, but, but it works really well to play movies and, and, uh, and, and store movies. It'll connect to Dropbox. You can have it auto. Right. I know it, it does a Dropbox and uh, there's another one too. And then I use uh, PhoneView, phone view, which we've talked about before yep. to drag files in and yep. out of, 
out of good reader. For, so. for example, there was a television program that uh, that we wanted to watch up in Vermont and I hadn't ripped it and brought it with us. So I, of course, my computer was down. So I pulled up the iPad. I connected to the network here. I, I remote controlled using a VNC. I remote controlled the iMac, told it to rip it down and I had it save it to a folder on my Dropbox. As soon as the rip was done, it started uploading. Nice. And then I was able to pull it to my iPad, did the whole thing without my computer. So, and I, you know, jump, jump back a year plus to last April when I was in Washington, DC, using my computer to do all that. Well, I, I pulled the computer out of that mix now. So because a good reader, so told you, I didn't know where it was going to go. What do you think, John? The only thing I would add, so I, I don't use handbrake that often. I okay. use, uh, on occasion, something called FFmpeg 10. Yeah. Okay. Or X, well, I think 10 is the, but the, yeah. the only thing I would add to this is usually when you're encoding a video, there are a number of parameters as, as you already pointed out. I think the, uh, I don't think you mentioned this, but a uh, bit rate is one of them. Yeah. Right. And that's the only one right. I would keep my eye on because if, if your assumed target is a, is a teeny little screen then, um, or, or a device that has relatively low processing power, then a low kilobit per second bandwidth is probably appropriate. But if you want to scale it up, yeah. Uh, uh, the, on a larger, higher resolution screen, that may bite you because then I think you're going to get choppy or laggy. Or it, it could be a much more pleasant viewing experience if you have a higher bandwidth throughput. So yeah, and, and, I actually wrestled with that when I uh, when I had my power. Yeah, it was a power book, right? Yes, yeah. PowerBook G4. And actually, when I was encoding videos, now that wasn't a, a real powerhouse of a machine. Right. But I remember I would take items sometimes hd off of my tivo and try to encode them for viewing on that machine at a friend's house he uh, oddly enough doesn't have cable okay and and the i had to knock down the kilobit per second uh bit rate because the g4 just was not able it just didn't have enough oomph to handle playing it at full screen at a, at a high bandwidth it, it started dropping frames and stuttering so huh that's the only thing I'll add about uh, what to keep in mind when you're. Uh, that's not an your, issue. Remember your, your iPhone, even the slowest iPhone is faster than your PowerBook G4 was. Oh yeah. But I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying if, if you, if you're displaying alert, keep in mind that if you're targeting a smaller device and then all of a sudden bring the video over to a device, the, the, the bandwidth throughput, right. Uh, kilobit per second throughput may may come back to haunt you. Yeah. Well, that's like you said, the resolution, you're going to get all pixelated. Same thing. If if it's encoded at a low rate and then you bring it uh, to a more capable or I'm sorry, no, it'd be going the other way around. Right. If you require a high bit rate and then you bring it to a device that yeah, can't handle it, then then you're going to get stuttering and things like, but yeah, Yeah, but you're not going to get that with the iPhones or, or iPod touches. They'll they'll handle it with, with H.264. So yeah, I highly recommend just do Apple TV two preset and handbrake. And and that handles all the bit rate and sizing and all of that stuff. And you will be a happy little camper. Um, you know what, while we're on this one, uh, I got a note from my brother and we will always answer questions from my brother because we couldn't possibly do the show w- without him uh, because without him, we don't hear. Well, you know what we don't hear is this, right? I mean, that's him. So we can't, we can't do the show without him. So really? we'll always answer questions for him. Uh, right. He asked, well, and this is believe it or not related. Bear with me. Will the Drobo work as a DLNA server? So uh, for those of us that live in an Apple. What's a DLNA server? 
Right. John asks. Yes. Good question. So for those of us that live in an Apple environment, the term DLNA never comes up. But outside of our environment, it's actually a pretty cool thing. And what DLNA is, is it is a standard for uh, devices to use to stream video and audio to uh, to to and from one another. So the idea is you'd have some DLNA client device available plugged into your television and then you'd have some, you know, media house, i.e. your Drobo or something uh, with a DLNA server on it. And if you had all your movies on your Drobo and you had some DLNA uh, device on your on your computer, on your TV, you could just stream directly from your Drobo to your TV and you don't have to have a computer involved or anything like that. And so the answer is, yes, the Drobo FS has the ability to run FUPS, F-U-P-P-E-S, which is an open source DLNA server. Uh, the, the regular Drobo does not because it's not a... Uh, it doesn't have any server. It's just a FireWire, or USB or eSATA device. But if you have the Drobo share, you can also install a FUPS server. So uh, and then on your TV, of course, the Apple TV doesn't support DLNA. Uh, the Roku box eh, it doesn't support DLNA. The TiVo eh, it doesn't support DLNA. The Xbox does. The PlayStation 3 does. So huh. you can get full HD quality streamed directly from your Drobo to your TV. If you have one of those two and there's, there's a couple others, but, but those are the most popular DLNA. So if you've got an Xbox 360 or a, uh, or a, um, a PlayStation three, then you can, uh, you can do that. So it's actually pretty cool. Digital living network Alliance, I think is yep. what DLNA stands for. Yeah. That's what I found. Hey, all right, cool. Nonprofit. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's just I don't a standard. Know if they have a fixed, uh, it sounds Ish. like more of an agreement. I, I don't know if there's yeah. a DLNA standard. Per, well, I guess it encompasses a group of standards where mm-hmm. everybody agrees. Yeah, we'll allow sharing among our devices to right. view movies and photos and audio. And yeah, it's cool. I don't, I'm I'm actually shocked that the TiVo does not have yeah. a DLNA thing because it's it's so fits into their whole vibe. Um, well, they've also you know they've always been I, I would say somewhat closed, Dave, and that it's fine if you use their programs. You yes, and I have seen this, you know, of. between you yeah. know, Pi 10 and yeah. I mean, other than their TiVo desktop, I mean, they're or if you figure, you know, the hand wave to get to their web server. I mean, but no, right. I would argue that it's it's a it's a very good experience, but I don't think they're really open. I don't know if that's, it's in their best interest. I, I've never seen yeah. them as a, yeah. as a as a company that that's striving for openness. Yeah, maybe that's just me. Yeah, maybe. On the other hand, I, I still anybody I know who has a uh, DVR that is not a TiVo hates it. Uh, for the most part, says you know, why can't anybody else get this right? Oh yeah, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. All right, uh, yeah. Let's hope they stay in business for a long time because I don't want to have to deal with the alternative. I think they will. I think they just so. want another uh, patent or Good. some sort of lawsuit thing. So. Good. All right. Let's go to uh, let's jump to Charles here. Ooh, yeah. Uh, and that'll probably wrap us up for the show. But uh, Charles writes, I was listening to show 332 in which the two of you were discussing app cleaners. I, like the reader who sent in the question, use app cleaner by Freemaxoft, but I always find its cleaning ability is somewhat limited. I constantly find extraneous files located on my hard drive that I believe should have been removed originally. Both of you named several others and you mentioned one in particular that you use. Any recommendations for an app cleaner that is more thorough? John, go. So I did a study, another study. Man, this is just good stuff. So I looked at the following programs. 
So three of them I was aware of and one I was not until recently. Yep. Thanks to a Twitter follower who I don't remember. But I looked at AppTrap, AppCleaner, AppZapper, and the new one that I did not know about, AppDelete. Okay. And so I took an application, uh, in this case, called AppFresh, <laughs> although it wasn't intentional. <laughs> it was just Why in the not, same right? general area. <laughs> AppFresh is one of the utilities that will go out and check all your apps and then tell you if they're new versions. So. Okay. But, uh, but the reason I picked it is because I know they do have a plist file in one of your uh, uh, launch agents directory, which is one of the things that I've noticed, if anything, a lot of these app cleaners do not deal with properly. Right. So I tried to toss AppFresh, and here's what I found. So... App Trap, which is a pref pane that I use, and App Cleaner came in uh, at the beginning and both identified the same things to get rid of. Uh, there was some stuff in library application support, user directory lab, library application support, and user directory library preferences. So they were both equivalent in the files that they identified to get rid of. App Zapper did a little better. It found a caches directory in my user library directory. So a point for app zapper but then app delete just went crazy app delete not only found all that stuff but it also found the plist file in launch agents it found something in the hang reporter directory in library slash logs okay i don't know if you really need to get rid of that but i mean it's cleaning things up and then it also found a uh, a growl uh, some sort of ticket in a, yeah, in yeah. user directory library application support growl ticket. Wow. So I got to say, I give, I, I would give of these four, I would give the nod to app delete in that it found the most items to get rid of. Okay. And now the pricing of these are, is kind of inconsistent. So app trap and app cleaner are free. Okay. Which is good. Yep. App zapper, which kind of came in at second, second is last I looked 12 95 and then app delete is seven ninety nine? Okay. So if you're looking for bang for buck, um, uh, of these four, it would seem to me App Delete is the uh, not only finds the most items, but is also uh, you know I think reasonably priced for what it does. So, so it's interesting because this week I started doing the same thing uh, in that I actually wanted to delete a bunch of apps that uh, that I had and and decided to do a little house cleaning because and I had no idea you were doing any of this and. Of course, I've got two things installed that that, that both will do this. One is called Hazel, uh, and it uh-huh. does track, right? I mean, it, they, and these two things do lots of other stuff. Uh, but but Hazel it monitors folders and does all kinds of things. We've talked about it before, so it will do the the uh, app tracking. But Hazel never had a chance to fire because Mac Keeper, which I also have installed, uh, was faster on the gun. And Mac Keeper's user interface is a little interesting because when you throw something away, it pops up a little floating dialogue that says Mac Keeper noticed you threw away X. Uh, do you want to delete its associated files? And you can either say OK or cancel. I'd never hit OK before because I wasn't sure what would happen next. Same, same happened with me. I, yeah. I was. Yeah. While testing, this happened. And, and like you, I was unsure because all of the others, I believe, will tell you beforehand. They'll say, oh, by the way, I found all these things. You want to get rid of them, which right. to me, I think is just the right way yeah, to Hazel, go about it. Hazel pops up a window and says, here's all the files I found. Which ones do you want to delete? Well, this time I knew I was deleting an app that I never wanted back. So I said, OK. And what happened next was pleasantly surprising. App uh, uh, Mac Keeper launched the full application. It brought me to the uh, the the app delete section and then it listed the app. 
and then showed me all the files and I could check or uncheck exactly as I would expect. And in fact, I could even queue it up and have a bunch of them listed there and then have it delete them all at once. So, and it, I, you know, you'll have to test it. It would, it would, it would be good to, to test Mac keeper against this exact same thing, John, so that you, you know, you, we have an apples to apples thing, but, yeah, uh, yeah. but I remember it. I mean, it definitely pulled some things out of launch agents at one point during my, my house cleaning. So uh, I was, I was really happy with the end result. And of course, now that I know the UI, I'm not afraid of it at all. I'll hit okay all day long and see what it wants to throw away. But uh, but, you know, that first time it was a leap of faith because I had no idea what would happen next. OK, so well, I give him points for getting the P list because that, that yeah. I found is is the, the shortcoming of most I'm of these. Pretty is that they sure don't- it did. I'm, I'm curious to your test to hear you, the results of your test, though. So, yeah. Well, if it works, then it gets rid of the uh, incessant uh error message from launch D right that's right (laughs) people see in the console and that that's why you want to get rid of these plist files because yeah it's a launch D job so uh you know I guess the only suggestion I would have for the uh, Mac keeper people is maybe to reverse that yeah if the dialogue listed all this stuff ahead of time it would it would give you a much warmer fuzzy because yeah I'm I'm nervous about saying okay to something they built the dialogue inside their own app which which is smart I see but, but they but and I get why they did it. They don't want to launch the full app just to ask you the question. Do you want to delete stuff? Right. I mean, if you wanted to. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah. But they just need to make the, the, the you know, the dialogue that comes up, you know, a little more in, instructive or a little more accurate to say, look, you deleted X. Do you want to see the associated files so you can choose which ones to delete? Yes. Right. I mean, it, you know, there you go. So you guys can have that for free. There you go. You can uh, yeah. surge and the team over there can. uh can take that suggestion and put it to good use. I hope they will. Uh, one cool stuff found before we go uh, in show three thirty one, uh, but we had a bunch of people send this one in. Greg caught us, caught us first. He said regarding Scott's encryption program question. Here's another commercial alternative from the makers of One Password, which is one of my favorite apps on my Mac and iPhone. It's called Knox, and it says it's uh, the simply secure file solution. And it is at agilebits.com slash Knox puts a little uh, drop down menu item in your menu bar because that's a good place for menu items. And you can create vaults that mount as disks on your, uh, you know, on your on your desktop and you can move stuff in and out of there. And uh, and it's uh, it seems pretty cool. I haven't I haven't tried it, but uh, but it, it looks good. And uh, so uh, you get a free trial of 30 days and I think it's like 35 bucks or something like that. So thank you, Greg, and uh, and everybody else that sent in Knox. But, and you get to set passwords. And at that point, at this point, I'm going to let Pete give the, our, give us our last little tidbit, which, uh, yeah, which that's a, it'll be a nice segue since we are talking passwords and, and I use one password and, and I'm a fanatic about security, as you know, because as I travel with my machine, if I ever lose it, I'm in it. I'm hoved. Yeah. So I do keep my whole drive encrypted and that sort of thing. But for a long time, I've, I've probably got four or five pretty strong, completely random passwords floating around in my head. And uh, it turns out that the passwords don't need to be quite so random. Um, and there's a, there's a great web page explaining it. Uh, it's GRC, that's GolfRomeoCharlie.com forward slash Haystack. And uh, Steve Gibson uh, explains a... Uh, a revelation that he had while working with passwords and that sort of thing that essentially size matters. The entropy of a password no longer matters, but when you create a larger room, 
any any brute force attack going on a password, as long as there isn't a um, an alphabetic word in there or a common password, that sort of thing, then the only way they're forced to get it, go after a password is brute force attack. And as you make it longer and longer, I mean, it, it can take at, at a trillion guesses per second, hundreds of trillions of centuries to, to successfully get a brute force attack, according to the odds anyway. But yeah. anyway, that page explains explains why. So now I'm going to go to a much simpler password scheme with a with a pattern in there right. that's easy to remember. And uh, so thinking along passwords and encryption mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, it, it, it it's brilliant. It really is. It, it shows. So you could, do, you could do three or four seemingly random characters followed by a repeat of one character for 20 spaces and you're good to go. Right. And, and his wow. example is is capital D, yep. the number zero, lowercase g, and then 21 dots. And it would take centuries for a brute force attack. That's awesome. To get that. The, uh, cool, the cool part is now we know his password. That's right. <laughs> he, he left it out there. You know, I'm guessing he didn't use that. that that's just a wild guess. But the beauty is once you, you've created essentially 95 possibilities, and each time you add a spa- uh, uh, another character in there, even if it's the same character, you've exponentially increased the difficulty of a brute force attack on that's discovering awesome. what it is. That's um, awesome. And so, yeah. Thanks, yeah. man. That's you cool. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. All right, John. I think it's time to uh, it's time to wrap this one up. Fun, good times. Uh, as always, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston for converting this show to AAC, as he does with most every other episode we have. Really, really appreciate that. And of course, we know all of you folks do too, based on the uh, the versions that we see downloaded. So, uh, thank you, Michael. Cashfly, of course, provides all the bandwidth. You want to tell them how to contact us, John? Or are we going to keep it secret? I, I, I wouldn't keep it a secret, Dave. <laughs> well, if I, if, if I were to keep a secret, it would be to not tell people to send us an email at premium at MacGeekab.com. No, 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 no. It's premium at MacGeekab.com. Because it's all about me. <laughs> premium. But not only can you send an email to that address you could pick up the telephone whether it be an iphone a landline phone or even a droid or a crackberry that's right crack 206-666 geek which john is 4335 skype us to mac geek even though it works but you haven't been using it lately Skype emailed me and said, uh, "Hey, nobody, uh, nobody's using this. You're gonna, you're gonna lose all your credits. So I, I gotta." Oh, yeah, I know, I know. It's not good. I need to shut that down. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, right. I don't know. Yeah, we'll leave it out there. Uh, yeah. Of course, iTunes comments. We really appreciate those when you send them in. That's it. We're uh, we'll be back. We got to look at. I got to look at schedule. They just yesterday finally posted the WWDC schedule, um, but of course it'll all change on Monday after the keynote. Uh, so John, you and I are going to have to just kind of float it. But I'm hoping Monday or Tuesday you and I can squeeze in a the uh, podcast. Yeah, no, yeah. nice one to get the. Uh Get that uh, schedule out. What can be split? Yeah, yeah. It really yeah. helps people plan. It does. It's uh, it's really nice of them to uh, to have gone out of their way to, to do that three days before everybody arrives. <laughs> well, at least I they thought... didn't change the date of the keynote. Yeah, that's right. They no, they won't. That. That's Remember not. They really did that. Oh boy. Sure. We will be at the keynote on Monday, uh, running live coverage. Live.macabrona.com. 
a good weekend. Have fun, but don't get caught because if you do. Oh, well, how come that didn't work? I had the coolest thing set up. We're going to do that again because if you do. (laughs) 